Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Last year, Scholastic launched a new imprint dedicated to publishing engaging narrative nonfiction for young readers. It's called Scholastic Focus. Today, we're talking with some of the Focus authors, as well as their editorial director, Lisa Sandel. Lisa, I want to start with you. What are you looking for in a book for this new imprint? Mainly, I'm looking for story. You know, I want a a narrative that's really going to grab readers and hold their attention and that feels relevant um, in some way, even if it's if it's covering a moment in history, I think there's no better way to figure out how to navigate the present than understanding the past. So every editor acquires books based on sort of what captures their attention and and it's no different for this, but I, I also am trying to really think about what will help young readers become citizens and, and good informed citizens. You're also an editor of many of Scholastic's fiction titles. How does your approach differ when you're editing nonfiction? Well, the editing itself is I mean, it's different for every book, but it's it's basically the same. It's trying to help an author tell the story in the most cogent and compelling way possible. But with nonfiction, there's the added responsibility of making sure that the text is factually accurate, that we've cleared any permissions that need to be cleared. If there are photos in the books, which many of these do have, that we've, we've um, done proper research and and cleared permissions to use those. All of the back matter that many of these books contain is is a lot of, it's a lot of added material that we don't have in fiction, you know, managing the source notes and bibliographies and the indexes. It's another layer. Are you giving the authors notes about things like pacing and voice as you would your writers of fiction? Absolutely. I, I definitely give the nonfiction authors notes in an effort to bring out what is most gripping. Um, you know, we have to be truthful and we have to be accurate in the reporting. But um, I think if we want young readers to pick up the books and then keep reading and keep turning the pages, we do have to be mindful of, of crafting the narrative in a way that's really exciting. Um, but that said, again, you know, you can't, the, when we're working with fiction, you can, you can suggest that maybe a character do something differently or say something differently, or maybe you cut a character out and, and we don't have that luxury with nonfiction. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a testament to the, the talents and skills of these authors that they're able to craft such fantastic narratives that really read as grippingly as any novel. I completely agree. As I was preparing for these interviews, I was absolutely captivated by the stories being told. Now we're going to share my conversation with four of the authors. 
First up is Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Professor Gates is one of the premier U.S. scholars of African-American literature and history. He's the head of Harvard's African-American Studies Department and an acclaimed author and critic. Here's an excerpt from his first book for young readers, written with Tanya Bolden. It's called Dark Sky Rising. Harry Jarvis was an imposing, impressive man. Over six feet tall and well-built, he was said to have a shapely head, a Roman nose, and the eye of a hawk, and might have been a model for a Greek chisel, the young Hercules in bronze, or a gladiator ready for the imperial review. In the spring of 1861, Jarvis, 25 or thereabouts, made up his mind to escape after his owner, the meanest man on the eastern shore, shot at him. For days, Harry Jarvis lay low in the woods, with a friend bringing him food and news. Jarvis waited for the right moment to take his liberty. It would come on the day of his owner's birthday bash, a time when the man and his friends would be boozing it up and carrying on into the wee hours. That was to be his freedom date. Three weeks passed by the time Jarvis lit out in stolen goods, a canoe from a white man, a sail from a black man. After a stormy start, he was blessed with a steady breeze at his back. By morning, he was 35 miles away, across the James River and at Freedom's Fortress. Like other black men, Jarvis yearned to fight for the Union. When he told General Butler of this desire, the white man snapped that it was not a black man's war. Jarvis shot back that it would be a black man's war before they got through. Welcome to the program, Professor Gates. We're thrilled to have you. I wondered what drew you to writing narrative nonfiction for a younger audience. I love storytelling. I love storytelling. All people love storytelling. You know, look at the, I have a four-year-old granddaughter. Her name is um, Ellie, Eleanor Margaret Gates Hatley, a brilliant little genius, of course. <laughs> and they come over to our house every Sunday. And as soon as you say once upon a time, you can see her eyes light up because she knows it's going to be a story. It could be a real story, but more likely at this point, it's a fantasy. Human beings love stories. They love narrative. So I wanted to, uh, I'm used to writing for adults, telling adult, adults a story through uh, film or writing, you know, I, I um, spent a decade writing profiles for The New Yorker and I write essays for all sorts of publications. But this is the first time I could go back and try to um, write a book that would have spoken to me when my imagination was awakening for narrative history in the eighth grade. And I remember when I, particularly when I was in the eighth grade, I loved reading biographies and historical accounts of great moments in the past. 
And I don't know if it had to do, if it's generational, if it has to do with development, but um, reading stories, account, rich accounts of the lives of people who shaped our country and indeed our world became a passion of mine when I was in the eighth grade and has continued. And in fact, when I went to Yale as an undergraduate, my major was in history. So, um, and I used to read scholastic publications in different forms <laughs> when I was young. So the opportunity actually to write a book about an historical period that uh, shaped the America that we know and love was something that I found irresistible. And I decided that reconstruction was the perfect subject um, to um, address. And why is that subject and others like it's so important, especially for today's young people? Why do they need these rich accounts that are presented in such a riveting way? Anecdotally, because I haven't done a systematic analysis of this, but my sense is that many United States history classes get through the semester by racing to finish the Civil War, and then they pick up the next semester with industrialization, immigration, and um, World War One, and then somehow we Reconstruction just gets swept under the carpet. And, and one reason is that it's a really hard story to sell because it doesn't line up with American notions of progress. How do we explain the backlash that came after the Emancipation Proclamation, which is such a glorious moment in the history of the United States, the liberation of 3.9 million slaves by the victory of the North over the South in the Civil War, and then, of course, the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which finally abolished slavery legally, in December of 1865. Um, it's a much more triumphant story to end with Lee's surrender at Appomattox, and it's much harder to ask and then to tell what came next, because it's a painful history, it's a, and it's extremely violent. Reconstruction basically lasts between 1865 and the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877. And during that period, it was the greatest moment of freedom for all of the African-American people. It led to the redefinition of who is a citizen in the United States. And that's when we established um, birthright citizenship. It led to the building of the black community under freedom, um, the reuniting of families, people getting married. Almost as soon as they could, former slave couples who couldn't get married legally under slavery, went to a church or a justice of the peace and got married. The formation of churches, the formation of schools, even um, uh, the birth of black colleges. And the revolution in black politics was astonishing. In the former Confederate states, 80% of eligible black male voters, and remember only men could vote, registered to vote in 1867. That's amazing. And there was huge grassroots ferment with black people, men and women talking about um, the political climate, but only men, of course, voting. And they went to the polls in droves and would elect over 2,000 black officials 
at the uh, local, state, and, and national level. I mean, that's incredible. But at the same time, there was a rise in American terrorism. Ku Klux Klan was invented in 1866 and tried to attempt these black people from exercising their freedom. And that led to other forms of, of intimidation, such as lynching. And we're all for, uh, familiar with the, uh, you know, the heinous crime of lynching that continued throughout the 19th century. So that history is very painful. The black people had a great deal of freedom for the first years of Reconstruction. And then by the time of the first Great Depression, which is now known as the Panic of 1873, there was a major retreat from defending uh, the rights of black people to vote in the South and, and their rights to enjoy the privileges of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. And that led to the painful end of Reconstruction with the Hayes children compromise, which removed the troops that were protecting black voters and black people um, in the few remaining states in the South. And eventually there were state constitutions in the former Confederate states that effectively deprived black people of the right to vote. And we see that awful period culminating in 1896 with the Supreme Court decision, Plessy v. Ferguson, which made separate but equal the law of the land. So if you want um, a quick way to think of the history of American race relations after the Civil War, for a decade, it was the best of times. And then after 1877, it was the worst of times. You did a wonderful job. And I'm wondering what you hope children like Eleanor, when she gets a little older and reads this book, what you hope they do with this information, what they, what they take away from your book and how they carry it forward. Well, I hope they understand that um, the right to vote is the most powerful tool that the Constitution of the United States gives to the citizens of our great republic. And as soon as the slaves were freed, they rushed to the polls as if their life depended upon it. And when white supremacists wanted to delimit this newfound power, of the recently freed slaves. What did they do? They prevented them from voting. Our freedom is inextricably intertwined with the right to vote. So we all have to register to vote. We all have to be educated um, citizens, listening to news, reading newspapers and magazines, listening to podcasts. And then on election day, we actually have to vote. In effect, the freed slaves were put back into a form of what we call neo-slavery because they, their right to vote snatched away. And we have to protect the right to vote precisely when it's under siege in um, so many places in the United States today. In the ballot lay power. That is where uh, that, the right to vote is the basis of freedom in the United States. That is the takeaway politically, ethically, and morally of our story about Reconstruction and its rollback under redemption. That could not be more powerful. The idea of elevating untold stories is one that all of the authors I spoke to echoed. Here's Deborah Hopkinson, 
Her book, D-Day, brings to life one of the most critical battles of World War II. Well, one of the questions that we like to ask in history, or at least when I started writing as a young girl growing up as a baby boomer, was where are the stories about people like me? And so I started out writing picture books mostly about girls in history before you know there was this explosion of wonderful biographies now. For D-Day, you know, you have to dig a little further, um, but we wanted to make sure for this book and all of my nonfiction that we, we try to be as inclusive as possible and include those stories and also the context for them. So why were, you know, the African-Americans on a barrage balloon unit? Um, what was the situation when African-Americans wanted to enlist? Uh, we have a story from John Hope Franklin, the amazing scholar, who was sort of turned away at the recruiting door. So those are the stories I think that round out the narrative. And the other the other voice I really wanted to get into this story was the voice of journalists and photojournalists because they were so important to that story and they're still important today in helping us understand the world um, beyond our front door. We think we know about D-Day. Um, when I talk to children and teens in schools, I always, always ask them what the D stands for. And I get lots and lots of uh, answers like doomsday and death day. It just is a military planning term, meaning day. Um, and it was the largest military endeavor in history. It had to be planned in complete secrecy, and it was massive. It was a way to go back to the European continent and finally uh, defeat Hitler. What I tried to do in this book is to bring it to life through the experiences of individuals and to make it alive in a way that is more than just the numbers that were involved. We're approaching the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, that will be June of 2019. The people who were involved in it are, are rapidly uh, passing away. And so this is, I think, a chance to, to look at it again and hopefully um, have uh, young people realize why we, we still call them the greatest generation. For history, it's not just like this timeline of things to be memorized. It's different when people were there and can share that experience with us. Well, that's undeniable. I'd love to share a section of your book that really illustrates your point. Dispatch. Watching history being made. As a petty officer in the Women's Royal Naval Service, Jean Watson worked in communications in the Southampton area of England and witnessed the buildup of the naval force. The sheer size of the invasion force was mind-boggling, she said later. All the assembly areas were saturated with Allied troops, tanks, guns, and armaments of all shapes and sizes, trucks large and small. In the signals office, Jean and others were kept busy, sending and receiving signals to ships and skippers. And Jean was on duty to send out the final message. The invasion was on. Just before going off watch in the morning, my friend and I were given permission to go down to the river to see the last landing craft sail away. And I remember thinking, I'm watching history being made and I am part of it. I remember, too, the awful deathly silence that pervaded the base as we walked back to our quarters, 
where there had been thousands of troops, armaments, and incessant noise, there was nothing. The tents, the troops, the guns, the ships, all were gone. My goal is to, is to see my books as a jumping off point so that they will read a ton of World War II books or a ton of history books. Um, and that's really the goal, I think. For readers looking for more World War II stories, we'd recommend The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History by Robert Edsel. Robert is the New York Times best-selling author of The Monuments Men, which was adapted into a feature film in 2014. Now this remarkable story is being brought to young readers for the first time. Welcome, Robert. Why don't we start with you telling our listeners about The Monuments Men? Well, The Monuments Men are a group of men and women, museum directors, curators, art historians, and artists who volunteer for service during World War II to save so much of the great art and culture of Western Europe from the destruction of war and theft by the Nazis. It's the most exciting story that I've ever heard, and I heard it from some of the Monuments Men while they were still alive. It's an adventure story. It's a treasure hunt. And it's a story about nobility, the remarkable sacrifice, uh, including the loss of the life by two monuments men, to try and do something that had never done before, saving uh, millions of works of art, important rare books, documents, museum treasures, and monuments from the most destructive war in history. And what inspired you to retell the story for younger readers? If you want to change the world, don't talk to adults. Talk to the kids because they're the ones that are going to be changing the world. And um, I've spoken to some 60,000 people all over the United States and Western Europe sharing the, the uh, per personal stories of these monuments men and women. But I haven't had the opportunity to get in front of young audiences and help them understand that these are the men and women that we owe the thank you to for the great museum treasures, many of which are now today in museums in the United States as a consequence of works of art being sold after the war. And so when we travel to places like Paris or London and see great monuments, great churches, or even visit museums in the United States, or sometimes visit libraries and see important rare books, had it not been for what these men and women did during World War II, then many of these things wouldn't exist. And I think that's an important thing to know. And, of course, the challenges of today with ISIS, al-Qaeda, uh, other terrorist threats, cultural treasures are always at risk of damage and destruction, whether it's through deliberate acts, uh, whether it's the erosion of monuments from carbon monoxide due to climate warming, uh, flooding, hurricanes, so this is a constant issue in the world in which we live today. Do kids today want to have these things survive for their children? Do they want to have them survive so that they can see them themselves? And that legacy of preserving these things for future generations has at its roots the effort of the Monuments Men during World War II. So true. I wondered if you could read an excerpt of the book for us. I was thinking the section when one of the Monuments Men from the United States, Dean Keller, arrives in Italy. 
happy to do it. The first chapter of the book is titled Letters Home. Dean Keller was a prolific letter writer. He was a man who was 43 years old. He left behind a three-year-old son. And this was one of the early letters to his wife and son to let them know uh, about his experience that is a consequence of the, the arrival in Italy and one of his first assignments. It takes place in Palestrina, Italy in June 1944. The army jeep crept along the hillside road leading to Palestrina, a small Italian town about 20 miles east of Rome. Captain Dean Keller, artist, professor, husband, father, and newly assigned monuments man for U.S. Fifth Army, knew the path from his student days when his painting and drawing talents had earned him the opportunity to study at the American Academy in Rome. No one was shooting at him then, but that was 18 years ago. Recent reports detailing how German troops were using elevation and blind turns as part of their ambush and retreat tactics caused great concern. Determined to serve his country and return home to his wife, Kathy, and their three-year-old son, Dino, Keller and Giuseppe De Gregorio, an office of the Carabinieri, and also his driver, continued advancing up the hill cautiously. After rounding a bend in the road, Keller grabbed Giuseppe's arm and told him to stop. He was out of the Jeep before it came to a halt. About 100 feet ahead, lying face down in the road, was the body of an American soldier. As Keller approached, he thought of a phrase he had once heard used to describe a corpse, sweetish smell. There was nothing sweet in the air on this hot June day. Despite the overpowering and nauseating stench, he continued walking. Those 100 feet felt like a mile. With each step, Keller thought about the boys as he referred to them in his letters to Kathy. They had been fighting their way up the Italian peninsula since landing at Salerno in September 1943, taking one hill after another. Some were the age of his art students at Yale University. He wasn't sure why he felt such paternal feelings of pride for them. Maybe it was a consequence of being 42 years old. Maybe it was being 5,000 miles away from his own son, unable to be the father that he had envisioned. Seeing the young men in uniform, the boys driving the tanks, the infantry soldiers crouching behind them, and this brave warrior lying in the road reminded him of Dino. As he knelt beside the young man's body, Keller noticed something in the overturned helmet. Wedged inside the helmet liner was an airmail envelope addressed to the soldier's mother. Keller wiggled the envelope out of the webbing. As best he could tell, the letter had been hurriedly written, perhaps before or even during battle. All he could do at this point was make sure it was posted. Thank you, Robert. Finally, we're going to hear from Lawrence Goldstone, the author of Unpunished Murder. It's about a band of white supremacists who massacred more than a hundred unarmed Black Americans, and the ensuing Supreme Court case 
that helped institutionalize racism in the American justice system. What, what Deborah does and what I do are actually not that different because she is taking an event that everyone knows about and bringing it, bringing it into light from a slightly different perspective. And I'm doing kind of, I'm doing a perspective of an event that nobody knows about, but they should. I've received um, emails from law school professors uh, who said, I'm so glad that you're right about the, the, the Supreme Court case was United States v. Cruikshank. I'm so glad you're right about this because I'm trying to get my students, these are in law school, to read about the case because it's so important, but they never saw it in their textbooks. I have to admit, Larry, before I read Unpunished Murder, I hadn't heard of the case either. I'm guessing that many of our readers are probably unfamiliar with it, too. Could you tell us what happened? Unpunished Murder is about an incident in, in a small Louisiana town in, in, on Easter Sunday, April 1873, when um, 150 white supremacists invaded and uh, massacred upwards of 100 of the African-American defenders. Um, it was a, a terrible incident. It made the newspapers across the country. And uh, because the state government in Louisiana probably would not have prosecuted the murderers, the federal government, using, a, using the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, accused 98 of them, brought them to trial. Three were convicted, and those three appealed to the Supreme Court. And... The Supreme Court, in a, in a decision called United States v. Cruikshank in 1876, the same year as we had the centennial, 100 years of freedom, freed those, those three convicted murderers. Not only was no one punished for this terrible mass murder, but it set the stage because of the way the decision was written for subsequent decisions, which were very responsible for bringing in segregation and Jim Crow, a situation that lasted until the 1950s, 1960s, and in some ways still lasts, still perpetuates today. As you say, this was an unspeakable incident. Not only the gruesome murders, but also the injustices that followed. This is a hard scene to read but I'd like to share some of it with our listeners. I think it's important. Here is an excerpt from Unpunished Murder. We're in and around the courthouse on Easter morning in Colfax. In the stampede to take refuge, the freedmen could not all get out through the narrow doorway. When those who could not enter tried to run, the whites charged up the hill, most on foot, some on horseback. They shot down every escaping black man they could. Any who threw down their weapons and attempted to surrender were shot as well. Some black men begged for mercy, but were murdered where they stood. Those who made it inside the courthouse met a similar fate. Although the building was brick, the roof was wood shingle. As reported later by army officers who visited the scene, quote, a colored man named Isaiah Atkins informed us that Mr. Nash had forced a colored man called Pink to come to this end of the building where there were no windows and hold a pine torch to the edge of the roof until it caught fire, end quote. As the fire spread along the roof, the burning shingles dropped into the building and soon the papers and wood inside were ablaze as well. 
Staying inside meant burning to death, so the freedmen had no choice but to pour out the door. Nash's men were waiting for them. They were ordered to throw down their weapons to surrender. The freedmen complied, but Nash was not there to take prisoners. Quote, when forced by the fire to leave the courthouse, the colored men were shot down without mercy. Under the warehouse, between the courthouse and the river, were the dead bodies of six colored men who had evidently crept under for concealment and were there shot like dogs. Many were shot in the back of the head and neck. One man still lay with his hands clasped in supplication. The face of another was completely flattened by blows from a gun, the broken stock of a double-barreled shotgun being on the ground near him. Another had been cut across the stomach with a knife after being shot, and almost all had from three to a dozen wounds. End quote. Larry, the sheer horror of this incident is overwhelming. As you lay everything out for readers, it's so hard to imagine that this case ended the way it did. There is a remarkable record. Um, the local newspapers were printing all the court cases, and there was an investigation by an army officer afterwards. He sailed into the town and did a 24-page report on what happened. So you can see the progression. Because I started it before Colfax. I started it at the Constitutional Convention, a short bit about what the courts were supposed to do, and then the way the Supreme Court evolved. And so you see that by the time this case reached the Supreme Court, there was little doubt as to the facts. There, were, there was little doubt as to whether or not the Constitution, the 14th Amendment in this case, had been passed to protect against this very kind of incident. And the court, using language and contrivance, decided that the 14th Amendment, for reasons that were really not particularly persuasive, decided the amendment did not protect against this kind of an incident, that it did not protect against the action of, quote, ordinary people. Ninety-eight of the white of the invaders were indicted. Only three were convicted. And the court freed those three. And the way they did it made it possible for these kinds of incidents to continue to be perpetrated for decades afterwards. And then the court refuse to uh, step in. So you see this. It, what I want is frustration. You know, why, why did our country, in this case, in the person of the Supreme Court, why did our country allow this so obvious injustice, this, this, these atrocities to go unpunished? What's the answer? The answer is that I believe that most Americans share similar values as to justice and as to what's right. But we, are, we have allowed ourselves to be put in a position that everything that somebody says we, that we don't agree with is wrong and everything that's by people we agree with is right. The answer is we begin to come together. We look at incidents in our past. We acknowledge that they happened. We decide that we will. We, this is not a past that we, that we want to emulate and that we start talking to each other. And each side begins to see 
the, the value, the justice of the other. And somewhere in the middle of that, I believe are solutions which will allow equal opportunity and, and equal justice for all Americans. You can help, and I hope these books start to do it, you can help create a mood whereby people, the, the America that we wish we had becomes something that we start to make. I think you're right. These books are a great step in that direction. Thank you, Lawrence. And thanks to Lisa Sandel, Henry Louis Gates, Deborah Hopkinson, and Robert Edsel for joining me today. Last but not least, thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrazula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.